0: From training to performing, join our big league conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 35. I'm excited for today, not only because this is an old friend, but also because it's a guy who's at the front lines of the data revolution in baseball. He's responsible for taking the information from the front office and really making it usable for the players on the field. And I think all too often we hear about the collection of data but relates to the dissemination of that information to the guys on the field that makes the biggest difference. So I think we're in for a real treat with this guest. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas. Energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. you get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's the zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality, so you won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives or added sugar. Um, Really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy-free, paleo, keto, vegan-friendly, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, Personally, I love it for for obviously our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, On a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, we split our time between two states and and i'm also still an avid lifter Um, so life is inherently crazy and it can be stressful and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens uh, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's, it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, they've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, they'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. Today's guest was born and raised in New Hampshire, where he established himself as a nationwide standout, which led to a college baseball career at Stanford. As an outfielder at Stanford, he was a two-time All-American, set the school record for career runs scored, and established the College World Series record for career hits. At the completion of his Stanford degree in 2004, he was drafted by the Chicago Cubs, and he went on to make his Major League debut with them in 2007. He wound up playing eight seasons in Major League Baseball for the Cubs, Rays, and A's, and Minnesota Twins. He also played for Team Israel in the 2017 World Baseball Classic. Upon his retirement, he was hired to serve as the Major League Player Information Coordinator for the Philadelphia Phillies. As a young kid, he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and he's done some tremendous charitable work with raising funds and awareness for these populations. Prior to his retirement, he was also a CSP athlete at our Florida facility, and he's become a great family friend over the years. Please welcome to the show, Sam Fold. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Eric. I am excited to have you because you are a, you're a, you're a CSP veteran. We are in the process of raising your jersey to the rafters, um, as a, as a storied alum of our, our programs, but you've moved on to, to even bigger and better things. So, um, I think that's maybe a great place to start. So we, we obviously know you as a Major League Baseball player and, you know, I know you said as a, as a dad and a, a husband and all that fun stuff too, but let's start with your current role of player information coordinator with the Philadelphia Phillies. How did you wind up in that role and, and what does the job entail? Sure. So, uh, I guess it goes back to
1: the off season of, I guess, going into 17. And I was when I was recovering from uh, a surgery and was still had aims of, of playing that year in 2017. And so my agent, spoke to Matt Clintack about uh, you know, opportunity with the Phillies and uh, you know, it was under the assumption that I was gonna be uh you know, available to play in twenty seventeen and, and so the conversation just sort of ended between my agent and Matt. I was like, Oh, by the way, you know, I don't know if Sam's gonna be done in five years or five months, but whenever he's done, you know, would love to talk about sort of uh next steps beyond playing. So that He told me that, and uh, I sort of kept that in the back of my mind. And um in the middle of 2017 is when I kind of decided to hang him up and realized I wasn't quite ready to pursue, you know, keep my playing career going. So Philly just seemed, without knowing Matt or really anybody else in the organization, I just sort of uh, I recognized a really good organization and, you know, did research on on the group and, uh, from a geographic standpoint, just sort of made a lot of sense having family close by, having the 34 kids that we have. It's always <laughs> nice to be, uh, near family. So, um, it, it just, it seemed like a good fit. And so I just struck up a conversation with Matt and, and, um, got to know, uh, other, other members of the organization. And, and by November, so just about two years ago, um, took the job. And <laughs> so it was a job that kind of Matt, crafted himself and it was really didn't didn't exist really um he may have been different forms of it in the in the form of like a quality control coach maybe but uh the idea was to be in a nutshell like a liaison between our analytics group and players and coaches so that sort of bridge or translator um to sort of take all the information that we get statcast and otherwise and make it usable and relatable um to players and coaches. So it's, it's, it entails a lot, and was, you know, sort of took it with, a you know, with a uh, you know, sort of broad scope. And, um, you know, some of it is like individual player development. Some of it is sort of in-game strategy stuff. Um, and a lot of it is like sort of developing coaches. Like we've had some really good educated coaches, some sort of data savvy coaches, but um, I, I've really enjoyed that part of it too, just getting them uh, as educated as possible.
0: Do you think it was kind of a a scenario of you know, you hire the person realizing it's a it's a it's a bright guy with a you know a wide ranging skill set who's played the game and is very educated and and then you say, all right, let's let's find a role for the person, or do you think it was something where they they saw a fundamental need with like the surge in data in baseball and they you know they were looking for the right person to help disseminate that information correctly or maybe a little bit of both?
1: Yeah, I think it was a little bit of
0: both. I, I do. Um I think
1: I was wide open. Like I didn't know what I wanted. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, what I remember just two years ago thinking like every part of baseball is interesting to me. Like, yeah. you know, the, like training aspect of it, the mental side of it, uh, you know, player development, um, scouting, it's all interesting. So I, I felt like I could, could was sort of, um, happy going in any kind of direction, but I think Matt identified I was sort of like a math nerd <laughs> and, uh, like that part of the game was always interesting to me. And he also at the same time recognized that. This was a you know an important role going forward with this sort of like onslaught of data um, and with
0: without somebody
1: there to help implement it in the right way, I think it's sort of like a, a useless
0: um, part of the game absolutely did were there growing pains i mean i I know personally having like played around with true media and even just you know you can go on Brooks baseball or baseball savant you can you can really get lost in that stuff very, very quickly. Mm. Did you find yourself up at three a m staring at, at <laughs> spreadsheets and stuff like everybody else has in that role?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, it is a dirty rabbit hole. It is a great <laughs> rabbit hole, but uh, true media alone is just like, you, you can get lost in there. Um, so I tried to at least take notes when I was going down those holes and, and not make it fruitless. And, uh, also recognize that my kids were going to wake me up in three hours. And then I should probably <laughs> just like set a little curfew for myself, a true media curfew, but it's, it's cool. And it's like the, uh, I felt like I kind of had to do that to, to catch up and to just sort of like prepare myself to be good at my job. And for the first few months, you know, I was lucky to take the job in November and not really like interface with players and coaches until like February. So I at least got those three months or so to um, learn as much as possible and, and hopefully come prepared with something.
0: Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. So during your, your MLB career, you obviously played for several organizations, but you know, the two that kind of stand out amongst your, you know, your resume are the Rays and the A's who were early adopters from an analytics standpoint. Obviously the A's were you know, the, the root of the money ball discussion and, um, the rays now have, you know, continuously outperformed a, you know, a low payroll in the context of the game. So were those things like in the, in, in that time, were you acutely aware of that front office focus in the, in the day to day when you were a player, or was it something that you felt like stayed in the front office? So I I guess in other words, did you find them to be using all that information more for player evaluation and game prep, as opposed to, you know, actual player development?
1: Yeah. I think it definitely leaned more on the evaluation side. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think I got glimpses of it, you know, when I was in Tampa, you know, I can remember a couple instances where, you know, I I was told, for instance, when I first got there, um, I started off really hot with them and then hit like this horrid, horrid slump. I remember being going like three for 50 or something like horrible. Mm -hmm. And I remember them sort of, I think it was Andrew Friedman himself coming down and just being like, look, and Derek Shelton was a part of it too, our hitting coach at the time. And, and uh them just saying like, it, you know what, it's a, uh, there's a lot of just bad luck here. And, and that was sort of a very basic example of them using data. I'm sure it wasn't just them like yeah. uh pulling it out of thin air. I think it was probably rooted in some kind of data, like not, not stat cast data. Obviously this was like 2011, but, mm-hmm. but um you know, so I mean, it was, it was an example of like using data to help me at least feel better about myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is a big part of my job anyways, like identifying, you know, either a true struggle or bad luck. And it, and that was an example of them just trying to identify some bad luck. So I think it existed to a degree, but, but by and large, it felt like, uh, player evaluation. Cause like the same guys were going from Tampa to <laughs> Oakland. It was like yeah. at one point, John J. So and Stephen Vaux and I, dan johnson had floated back and forth and so it was like all these a's raised connections that like didn't didn't feel like an accident
0: <laughs> um and i'm I'm curious you know when you look back on your own career you know obviously that was the time when it was more player evaluation and you know it's it shifted remarkably towards player development either that in the context of whether it's developing a new pitch or you know changing a swing pattern or you know taking what you have and having a different approach now it's a player development approach when you look back at your own career could could a player information coordinator have helped you with the actual player development aspect of things?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'd like to think so. I yeah. Think so. I mean, and, uh, and, and I guess how, you know? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I think, um, one thing I didn't really do, like, throughout my career was, like, know myself. You know, I sort of mm-hmm. had guesses about what my strengths were, but, um, mm-hmm. there were guesses, and I don't think, you know, part my fault. I know, I know looking back that the information was available, but I never really even looked at, like, my own heat map, you know, like where do I do damage? Um, and I had thoughts, but I I never got it sort of solidified by fact. So I think that alone would have helped me. Maybe I would have stopped hunting fastballs down and away and just looked for a a heater middle in. If that was, you know, looking back, like I probably did more damage on heaters middle in than I did down and away. But a lot of times I think I probably, um, looked in the wrong spots without knowing exactly who I was. Maybe I would have hit the ball, and tried to hit the ball in the air a little bit more. Like my whole career, I was kind of that guy who was told, you know, hit ground balls and line drives. Yeah, don't ever hit the ball in the air. Um, but I bet if somebody had shown mm-hmm. me that, you know, my expected wobble was. A lot higher when I hit the ball in the air than it was on, on all those four three ground outs I bet I yeah. would have shifted
0: my focus a little bit in fairness I think your 12 career home runs went really far <laughs> I didn't <laughs> I didn't pull numbers on them but so yeah. I, I, th- these are always so I always joke I, I had Lomo on here and Will Middlebrooks is going to come on we've talked to Joe Panic, and what's interesting is you interview a hitter uh they always have to be kind of like tactful about their responses like you're not going to have a guy come up and be like yeah i you know, I can't hit heaters up or, you know, like if you throw me a right hand on ready change up, it's the worst day of my life. Like they're very secretive about that. And obviously I understand why, but in, in hindsight, as a retired athlete, where, where were your weak spots? Who absolutely <laughs> owned you? And looking back, do you think that there are, are bits of information that could have helped you in those?
1: that's a great question, um yeah, I have no problem admitting all my <laughs> faults. <laughs> it was it, throw the baseball, and that was uh that was a good way of getting me out um, uh like curveballs, I mean, I hunted heaters, and I know a yeah. lot of guys do, but I really sat heater until two strikes um mm. and and back i'd say more so like say ten years ago than now, I just sort of fit the stereotype of a guy that was gonna get a lot of heaters so mm. It just didn't make sense for me to look for anything other than that until I needed to. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I remember, like, playing Houston when they changed regimes and, and like, with Jason, Jason Castro behind the dish. And it's clearly, like, a change in game planning using more information. I remember getting, like, a lot of breaking balls. And uh, I remember thinking – Oh, they're actually reading my, like a scouting report here. <laughs> they see that I'm hitting, I'm one for my last 30 in curveballs. That's why I'm getting four curveballs. So, um, yeah, I think like it's such a chess match. So maybe knowing that, you know, I, I think I felt like within the context of the, within the net bat, I was making an adjustment going, Oh, Houston knows that I can't hit a curveball. Maybe I'll, I'll sit on a curveball and at least have a better chance, um, on it than if I wouldn't
0: otherwise. Would you agree with like the general consensus? I mean, the technology is very much biased towards pitchers, right? And, and the nature of baseball is biased towards pitchers because the hitter is responding to a pitcher. Um, do you feel like that it's a, it's a massive, uh, asymmetry in terms of who analytics has helped that hitters have, have been kind of left behind while pitchers have had all the good stuff? And do you see that cha- If If you agree, do you see that changing yeah. anytime soon?
1: Uh, yeah, I think yes and no. Definitely when you have the ball in your hand and you can make decisions, um, it's, it's way easier to lean on data. Uh I I've no I don't dispute that one bit. I think um, hitters are starting to get uh like tilt the scales a little bit, I think, by just um, having a better understanding of what a good swing is and yeah. what in certain ways to practice to, to put yourself in a good position. So I think that's sort of how the hitters have caught up to a degree. Um, I think they you know, you can certainly use information as a hitter, uh from an, an either an advanced standpoint or a sort of know thyself standpoint, but um I think the the real advantage is just getting some really you know i 'd say in the last five ten years this the swing revolution stuff has really helped them, and I know it gets a lot of criticism publicly, yeah. but I think it has absolutely helped uh hitters um, put themselves in better position
0: to succeed um i'm I'm curious so obviously i 'm in the private sector and you know, I, I think we, we get a lot of guys that come to us. Maybe there's a, a little bit of a velvet rope around the business. Like the only guys you see here are, you know, guys who really want there. They want to leverage every bit of expertise they can get. And, um, you know, so we, we very openly share data, whatever we can get our hands on with our players, you know, it we know that they're bought in and we do our best to disseminate that information correctly so they can use it. But I do know there's, there's some hesitation in certain organizations about sharing data with players. I've even heard stories about, you know, organizations where, where minor leaguers are fined if they ask for trackman data or, you know, try to access them on their own because they're so concerned about overwhelming players. Do you feel like that's, that's actually a legitimate concern or is that over, unfounded? Uh I do.
1: I mean, I think, uh I think like everything, it has to be, individualized. So I mm-hmm. think everybody, you know, certain players can handle certain amounts of information when mm-hmm. I mean, you have to, you have to think like you can't not think, <laughs> and, you know, you want to be as simple minded as possible. Um, but if you are, let's say you're a 22 year old now who's been exposed to track men data f- since they were 15 and they've been exposed to say heat maps and, you know, count by count tendencies and all this information they're just comfortable with, um, then I think you can kind of go to the next level and start getting really detailed with them. But if you're somebody who's 35 and has been, you know, see ball, hit ball, mm-hmm. and, you know, I want to take a few flips before the game and I'm ready to go and I don't want to know anything else, uh, then you just can't, like, you can't overwhelm them with, with information and it's just going to be kind of worthless. So you just have to, you know, I feel like my job, Half of, half of my job is playing psychologist and trying to figure out how to, what's going to be the best approach with, with each guy. So some guys, uh, myself included, I feel like I probably overanalyzed, uh, too much. And I think whatever information, whether it was, um, external information, you know, like trying to, trying to guess a pitch coming or, you know, internal thinking about my own swing, I think it probably got in the way, uh, to a degree with
0: myself do you think it's also like somewhat cultural? Like I've always heard stories about like, you know, you have players or support staff that just refer to like the nerds in the front office so that there's, there's always like a level of, like uh, I guess, blocking of the information, getting to the people who want. So if you get a veteran who's really, really down on the idea of looking to this stuff as a, as an asset, like does obviously, does that make your job more challenging when you have those situations or do you feel like those people are, are phasing out of baseball on the whole? I think they're a, uh... I think they're phasing out a little. Yeah,
1: for sure. I, I think, um, it is, it's a legit, uh, problem. I mean, uh, it's a challenge, I should say. Like it's, it's especially if you're, um, you know, coming into an environment that is not accustomed to that kind of thing, you know, sort of like change management is, is a, is a big part of this. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. It's like every year, there's just a little bit more open-mindedness to this stuff and a little bit more kind of integrating between front office and and in the clubhouse. But, yeah, if you've got a if you've got a player that is a, a veteran player who's sort of like anti analytics, it definitely doesn't make things easier. That's for sure,
0: no doubt. And uh, I'm I'm actually really curious to get this next take. And I, so literally last night I was like packing up stuff for for today for the girls for lunch, and, and MLB Network on in the background, and they had Al Leiter and Dan O'Dowd on, and they were talking about like the. How the learning curve for new MLB managers is probably lower than ever before. So they were talking about David Ross being hired by the Cubs and you know some of the other younger hires that we've seen in, in not not too you know recently, but you know, basically because the amount of information they need is provided for the front office. So instead of having to work on hunches and intuition and things that you would have acquired out of years and years of sitting in the dugout and watching games and building a sample size. You know, they, they comment that that may be one of the reasons why we're seeing so many young, recently retired players who are becoming managers. It's, mm. you know, it's, it becomes more about relating to players and managing personalities than maybe strategy. Do you think there's, mm. there's validity to that? Or, you know, is there, is there a lot more to it? I mean, you obviously played for a lot of managers and, and been around young managers too. Yeah. Um, I
1: think, no, I do think there's validity to that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you can kind of like get further down the road, uh, with a few pieces of paper in front of you instead of, leaning on 30 years of experience, um, to make those decisions. So I, I I totally see that and agree with it. I think, uh, I think you can always like dig deeper though. You can always kind of try to maximize your strategy, your in-game strategy, your lineup decisions. Um, you can try to maximize those even more. Right. So you might be getting to like the 10 yard line with a couple pieces of paper, uh, but maybe you want to get down to the five yard line and get even, you know, peel back another layer. And so like you want to, you know, if like let's say we've got an Adam Hazley versus Sean Rodriguez decision, like, uh, you know, who to pinch hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, let's say Max Freed's out there with like this huge curveball and mm-hmm. traditionally like you would say, or the information that you have on hand says that, you know, the lefty righty matchup is better. Sean Rodriguez is a better matchup, but maybe you just try to, Become even more granular and go, oh, Adam Hazley actually kills left handed curveballs, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I think you're always able to sort of peel back another layer and uh, it doesn't, yeah, I think it's like it, it, you can get, uh, you can get to a certain point right now quicker, but mm-hmm. you can always, you're always going to try to get further. And so I think like it's a long way of saying it is easier, but it's still really hard because yeah. now the expectations are that you, you know, you kind of maximize even more your strategy.
0: Maybe, maybe like a, a career development question detour here. I know when we had Ryan Flaherty, um, you know, well, Mass, um, sorry, Maine and New Hampshire and you guys both have trained alongside. When we had Ryan on, um, he talked about just how much he learned from just being in the dugout next to Buck, Buck Showalter all those years. Um, you know, and trying to hang up by the managers and, you know, obviously Ryan's a guy who I'm sure will be thrown into managerial discussions at some level when he decides to hang him up and, you're already a name that's been, you know, thrown into that discussion. You've obviously a guy who was ascended quickly into a front office slash coaching role. Do you think there are certain things that, that, you know, that people can do or players can do during their career that set them up for, you know, a, a better post baseball uh, career in front office mm. or managerial work? Like when you look back on what got you to be a, a Phillies front office member at a young age, what do you think mm. some of those, those, you know, important competencies you picked up on were? Yeah, I think like, you take advantage of the
1: resources that you have around you. So like being, being curious is just so crucial. You know, I, looking back on it, I, you know, I really valued all the time that I spent in Tampa and Oakland and, and Chicago and Minnesota and just getting to lean on all the, all the great resources that I had, like, you know, teammates, coaches, front office alike. So take advantage of that. You know, I think it's just, I think it's really cool. You bring up Flaherty hanging out with Buck, but I think like, yeah, I, I look back at, uh, I just thought about, you know, the couple of days off that, that Harp had this year, he was sort of sitting by, you know, cap and sitting by Rob Thompson our bench coach and just trying to soak in like the, the decision-making that goes on from a managerial perspective. I thought, man, that's like really cool. I'm pretty sure you don't want to manage when you're done playing. Yeah. You're going to be, uh, you know, you're going to be just, you're going to be stepping into the hall of fame and, and doing whatever you want. I doubt it's going to be managing, but but I thought that was pretty cool. Like he's just curious and, and, um, I think more players can do that. Uh, I think the, the better equipped they'll be, you know, whether it's being curious with your coaches or curious with front office.
0: I feel like that's something I always noticed with you too. Like you under, you always wanted to ask the why of we, why we were doing things in the weight room. And, you know, that's even kind of been something that's carried over to how you view the analytics. I know you and, and Brian Kaplan talk a lot about just how the physical competencies relate to what you see on track man data or anything like that. So. You know, that curiosity has to carry over across different disciplines. It's not just what's happening on a baseball field.
1: Yeah, 100%. I, I, yeah, I tried to, you know, I sort of balanced when I, when training with you guys, like, Asking too many questions and, and not getting like maximized
0: in my workout, but. Uh, I was, a, I was know. asking you questions about how to, how to handle having 27 children. So <laughs> <laughs> you, you set no, me up for success. <laughs> yeah, we helped each other. Yeah, uh, for sure. <laughs> so, so where do you, where do you see like the, this baseball information age going next? Like what's the next frontier? Um, you know, and just as importantly, how do coaches make sure the information translate to actual player development? Yeah, uh, it's
1: a good question. I, I think. I think there's still a ton of room for growth, uh, medically and, mm-hmm. and mentally. Those are kind of the two that pop into mind. Like I know, um, people like yourself are doing a great job of like sort of really improving the industry from a medical standpoint, from a, you know, both a player health and a player performance mm-hmm. standpoint. Uh, I think I still think there's a ton of room to grow there. Mm-hmm. Um, and just getting the right, you know, getting better educating hitting coaches. Pitching coaches, uh, and, and better educating them to some of the things that they can do from a, a player can do from a training standpoint to, to maybe allow them to execute a change, um, better and, and more efficiently. So I think that's a, that's a big, uh, potential room for growth. And I think on the mental side, like we will never figure out, uh, like how our brains work. Um, but I think we can get a little bit closer to, to figuring that out. And I just think about like, the ups and downs that every player goes through, um, within the course of a season. And I still truly believe that so many are driven by the neck up. And I know that we are really, really attempting, um, to, to better figure out what, what is the cause of that. And I think we're, we're getting there from a technology standpoint, where we start, I mean, we can hook up brain sensors to guys now when they hit and get a better understanding of, of brain activity. And I just think that like, if you can take away if you can limit sort of mental slumps by twenty percent, you've made a
0: player a lot better.
1: And if we can do that on a more widespread spread basis, um, I think <laughs> I think the industry will really improve.
0: Absolutely. I'm gonna, I'm gonna shift gears on you and talk about your playing career. Cause you have to, we talked about the, the front office guy more than anything else. And I'm, I'm curious because you were a kid from New Hampshire who went to Stanford as a position player. And it, you don't see a whole lot of position players that come from the Northeast. Um, because of the weather, you know, you don't see, you know, 15, 90 p- mile per hour arms every season. Like the kids in Florida do. Um, it's, it's, so it's really, really hard to evaluate position players from New England. So I I guess my question was, what was the secret for you to get on that radar? Um, you know, to, to actually wind up at Stanford in the first place as a guy from New Hampshire?
1: Yeah. You know what? I, I was, I don't know if I had a secret to it. I I just, I played, uh, I played American Legion baseball in the summer and I played, uh, uh, Phillips Exeter where we played, you know, 15 or 16 games a year and it was, you know, I think, uh, I was lucky in that Stanford had, you know, they have to recruit nationally. And I think they probably had some connections to scouts, like just across the country. Um, so, you know, I was, uh, you know, I, I played in the area code games. Yep. I was actually really lucky. I was, you know, my best friend growing up, uh, was Chris Gale who now works for the Indians and his dad was Rich Gale, you know, who was a major league baseball pitcher and a, and a pitching coach in the big leagues in the Red Sox. And he pulled a couple strings to allow this area code game tryout to happen. Yeah. Um, and that's like, I, otherwise it was not going to this area code games. Yeah. Um, and so Chris and I traveled down to Rutgers university one day and, uh, in the summer and tried out for this team and we both made it. And that allowed us to go out to long beach and be exposed to, uh, obviously like a, a huge number of professional and college scouts. So that was, you know, I think that had a pretty big part in it. Um, But honestly, I just I felt like uh, any time I stepped on the field, I was playing really hard and I played with a chip on my shoulder like I was a kid from New Hampshire who had something yeah. to prove. So, um yeah, that's it. I, I played. I practiced baseball as much as I could. I would, you know, pull down the cage in the UNH field house or at the Exeter field house and have my dad throw BP to me all the time and, and uh, I was always trying to be a better baseball player but I played other sports too and I think definitely uh, attribute a good amount of my like athleticism in the outfield to having played basketball and soccer throughout my uh, youth.
0: That's good to know and well I'm even building on that like in 2000 I'm reading this off Wikipedia um, in 2001 as a freshman you batted 357 as the team's lead off leadoff hitter um, in the postseason, you hit 396. And then, as a sophomore, you led the Pac-10 in hits, broke Stanford's single-season record while while batting three seventy-five. You led the conference in total bases. Like we could go on and on. I'm I'm curious. So you didn't just make it to Stanford. Like you you raked as a freshman, right? So what what allows you to hit the ground running going to a larger environment like that? Because it just the, let's be honest, the at bats weren't there. And then yeah. even on top of that, like that was in an era where you would just like go into the field house, set the pitching machine on 95 and take like, take, <laughs> take balls at, at 45 yeah. feet lined at you. So what was the secret? Yeah. To yeah.
1: My dad, I'd like to think my dad's a pretty good uh, BP thrower, but <laughs> yeah, you know, looking back through like 38 mile an hour cutters, probably, <laughs> but, uh, sounds yeah, like no, my uh, kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sounds familiar. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, some of it was just kind of, like, ignorance. Um, I just felt like I've got nothing to lose here. Uh I wasn't intimidated. I think there were a couple of experiences looking back that probably gave me some co- some confidence, like, whether it was conscious or not. Just playing in the area code games and, like, having success there and facing Mike Davern, who threw 94 miles an hour then as a 17-year-old, like and having some success. I think, like, at least I wasn't showing up to Stanford totally intimidated. Yeah. I played AAU baseball. Like when I was 14 and 15 and I played in these national tournaments and at least got some idea of how I stacked up, um, on a national basis. So, um, I would definitely recommend like kind of at least putting yourself in a position where you get some sort of context. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, if you do make a move, like going from New Hampshire to a Pac-10 school at the time, uh, I think that, that probably gave me more confidence than I, than I knew at the time. But yeah, I just didn't have any fear and, and felt like I was one of the, one of the guys. Even though I had maybe a tenth of the reps that my buddy Carlos Quentin had growing up in San Diego, you
0: know? Absolutely. Now, if you, <clears throat> excuse me, if, in spite of the fact that you were, you obviously put up really good numbers for three years at Stanford, your junior year rolls around and you were taken in the 24th round by the Cubs. Um, and a lot of people at the time, you know, attributed that to like a, a bias against shorter players. And obviously you, you were drafted by the Cubs the next year after, you know, kind of a shoulder injury, which derailed the draft stock a little bit. But, when I look at that junior year, I'm like, your numbers do not align with someone who's a 24th rounder. Um, do you think that, and I know there's always the question of like Stanford guys, do they want to play baseball? Do they want to go work for hedge funds, whatever it may be? Do you think that baseball's past that that bias against height? You know, guys who aren't tall now that Altuve and Pedroya have gone out and done their things?
1: I think so. Yeah, I really do. I mean, does it still exist? Like, maybe to a degree. Especially in um, pitchers. Yeah. 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 I think definitely on the, there's so many position player, undersized position players that are just some of the best in the game. Like, you know, it's Bregman and it's Jose Ramirez and, you know, Mookie Betts, like none of these guys are are big physical guys. And, uh, so I think, and then you see, you've seen it in the draft recently, like, um, Madrigal, you know, Mm -hmm. Nick Madrigal getting taken second over, I think no, whatever it was top five overall. And, and, uh, uh, you know, he's tiny and I think that's really cool. So, yeah, it probably existed more 16 years ago than it did than it does now. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I think that that was uh it fueled me. I knew it. Like I you know, I had obstacles growing up in New Hampshire and being type 1 diabetic and being short. Like those were all these things that gave me like a little bit added motivation all the time, so I just kind of used it to fuel me.
0: All right. All right. And then what advice would you give to those smaller players out there who are trying to overcome yeah. those objections, whether it's a pitcher, a position player, anybody like what 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 hurdles do they have to get over that the guy who's 6'4" 220 doesn't have to face yeah
1: just uh like uh, use it to your advantage you know like play with a chip on your shoulder really and that's all you can do you know um it, in some ways it's it's fun and it's in some ways easier to be the underdog you know um i think whether it's from a team standpoint or an individual standpoint like baseball is pretty fun when you're an underdog and you succeed you know i, I when i When I got to the big leagues, like it felt so good (laughs) (laughs) because it was like I had to overcome a lot, you know. And and I think obviously it feels good for everybody to make their big major league debut, but if you're a uh, six foot five, two hundred thirty first rounder, it probably feels like a little less good than it feels for a five nine Mm -hmm. lefty lefty outfielder from (laughs) New Hampshire. So I think it's uh yeah just just. Use it, use it to your advantage and, and play with the chip on your shoulder.
0: We had, um, AJ Pollock on a while back and AJ's obviously a New England guy who made it to the big leagues as a position player from, uh, from the Northeast who's also known for his outfield defense. But that was kind of your MO. What was the, the line? Two thirds of the world is covered by water and two third, the other third is covered by Sam Fold. So what are some of the recommendations you would make to young players? want to prioritize defensive development, particularly as outfielders? You mentioned playing multiple sports at a young age. Yeah. What about in the actual, like, skill aspect of baseball? Were there practices that you went through on a regular basis to prepare?
1: Yeah, you know, I think, like, I, I, I say this all the time, it's really about getting game-like reps during batting practice. There's no better substitute. Um, I think, like, it is. it is, it's not easy to do, but it is the best way to get yourself better as an outfielder. Um, there's no other way like we're getting better at simulating that um, from a practice standpoint like so we even do that where we'll put a coach myself included in the box and have, have sort of either flips uh take flips and hit it to outfielders to, to try to replicate a ball off the bat in a game but um, there's nothing like bp to to do that you know you read swings you read pitch location read angle of bat through the zone you read all these things depth of contact you get all this information that you just wouldn't otherwise get, uh, especially from the corners. And if you take that seriously and you just, and we're talking about like 15 minutes of focus, you do that um, and play and sort of play these things out. So even if you ball gets by you and it's, um, you know, five feet to your left, like play, play it out and learn how to play the ball off the fence and learn all these little things that like you just, you wouldn't otherwise do in a, in a sort of drill setting. Uh, I really believe that. And I think, you know, I think the other thing is watch baseball. Like, it's amazing what you can do from just watching uh baseball and, and not just, you know, not just two-second highlights, but, like, legitimately watch baseball in three-hour games or if you can condense a bunch of that-bats into a shorter time f- period. Like, I would highly recommend that. I think back of to how much baseball I've watched uh, as a kid, just watching the Red Sox every night. And mm-hmm. you don't know it at the time, but you're sort of like – getting all these reps, these mental reps by watching, watching baseball. And you, you see, uh, all these swings and where, where batted balls end up. And I think that I truly believe that had something to do with my sort of ability to like get to a spot and, and know where that baseball is going to land.
0: I think, yeah, I think that's, that's, I don't want to say it's interesting. Maybe doesn't do it, do it justice, but you're a type one diabetic. And the thing that I'd never, I never saw you eat junk food. I never saw you put like unhealthy things in your body and, Was that kind of a blessing in disguise for you? Is that from a young age you had to be so cognizant of what in your what in your system, how you fueled yourself, that nutritionally it it almost long term became an advantage for you?
1: I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Again, kind of like I I tried to use the the disease to my advantage uh, the best I could, and and I, you know, I was sort of like I was probably a pretty disciplined ten year old when I was diagnosed anyway but it it definitely uh did not allow me to abandon any of that discipline and it, and it whether it was from a training standpoint or a nutrition standpoint i was uh i certainly had my moments and when your blood sugar goes low it's hard to really uh fight impulses you want to take anything with any sugar near you and you're like a you know you're like you're like my nine year old boy just devour anything in sight uh but for the most part it was pretty disciplined and i think it definitely helped me be in shape and and just
0: be a better baseball player. I like it. All right. So now we get to go to the lightning round. This is the fun stuff. Um, so the first question you, you've heard the podcast, so we asked this to everybody. What advice would you give to a teenage Sam fold?
1: Oh man. Uh, I would say, uh, I would say it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, but just be curious, ask more questions. I think it was a pretty introverted kid, high school kid, especially. And, be confident to ask really curious questions that I probably didn't do
0: a better job of in real life. Absolutely, and and in fact, you became so curious once you got to pro ball that the first time you came to see me. Do you remember what what the drive was like? <laughs> <laughs> I remember, uh, yeah, it was the Hurricane Sandy drive. Like, yes, it was exactly what was. my Honda Accord almost
1: uh, like flew into a building on the way to your, you, your uh gym. Yeah. You
0: persevered a hurricane because you were so curious. So that's a good that's lesson right. to all the young. What about minor league Sam
1: Um, shoot, relax. (laughs) Yeah, I stressed a lot. I did my whole career, but I think like, uh, it was especially just in the Cubs system, not knowing where I stood within the organization, I was constantly, uh, worried. And I, I wish, uh, I had had known that I would at least may have a decent major league career.
0: (laughs) What about if you had to give one book recommendation of anything you've read over the last year, what would it be?
1: Oh, uh, I read a really good
0: uh Adam Grant book called Originals. Yep. Great book. Yeah. Adam Grant's got a lot of good stuff. Give and take is another good one that he wrote. Yes. So there you go. Um all right, so this is another one. So currently, so for those who don't know at home, we actually have a fantasy football league. Among Cressy Sports Performance, current and retired athletes. Um, so it started off as me and nine pro guys. And now the official side of the league is six pros and four Joes. You, you've, you've, uh, ascended to the Joe category. We've got a, we got Chris Volstad, who owns a brewery. Me, we've got Radley Haddad, who's Yankees bullpen catcher as the other, other Joe in that. You're currently in first place and you're the high scorer with a record of eight and one do you think there's any correlation between fantasy football success and front office proficiency?
1: Uh hundred percent. Yes. Uh, well, no, because <laughs> if you check, <laughs> uh, if you checked my, uh, my history in my other league, uh, you would be like, Oh God, this guy would never want to hire this guy in a front office. This is horrible. So I would uh, like to take credit for stuff I've learned from the front office, but, I think it's more like I drafted the Stanford guy named McCaffrey and
0: I've really had good success. That, that worked out all right for you. That's yeah. Nice. Um before we wrap up, um I know you run a, a camp for kids with, with type one diabetes every year and it's a, a huge success. Tell the listeners a little bit more about it and how they can get involved or donate.
1: Sure. Uh so it is it's been something i started it in two thousand twelve, so this will be my ninth camp this February. It's every February. We do it the weekend after Super Bowl weekend. It's uh, in Tampa at the University of South Florida. It's a it's a Type One diabetes sports camp for kids that are seven to seventeen. We offer a ton of different sports. All the coaches and counselors at the camp are, are Type One di- diabetic. Um, a lot of them have reached really good heights as as an athlete. We've got professional tennis player, professional basketball player, a former NFL player, all Type One diabetic. So a ton of good role models and and. Uh, a weekend of like really good experiences for kids and parents too. We, we hold a, a parent seminar on the, on the weekend and it is uh, a highlight of my year every weekend. It really is. And, uh, it's, it's, we do a lot of great things. We've partnered with university of South Florida's diabetes center. Uh, it started when I you know was playing in Tampa and it's just been a, a really, really cool experience that I want to keep going forever, or at least until the disease is, is cured. So, it's, uh, samfoldt1dsportscamp.org. You'll get information on the camp, uh, and how to donate there.
0: Right on. And you're, uh, you're semi active on Twitter. It's at Samfold5 <laughs> Sam and, and your Twitter account actually links directly to that page as well. So folks yep. can, uh, can check you out there. So, um, Sam, thanks so much for coming on, man. It's always good to catch up, but it's, it's even cooler to catch up when, when we mix in all the good expertise and lessons for everybody at the same time.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Appreciate you having me, Eric. Thank you
0: for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions. For future guests and questions, just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.